Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. And we are once again living a lie because you are in Indian land. Trail. Trail. Dang it. Every time. And I am You're not even in North Carolina. Yeah. Right. So I have taken multiple walks today. I went snowshoeing through a frozen swamp today, but not with you, sadly. Wow. But um, but I am glad to be having um, having this moment to record this podcast. So what is astonishing you? Well, last week or the week before, I talked about uh, the sad news uh, that our worship leader, Cedric, had uh, gotten a call to a church in Florida and that he was leaving uh, to follow God's call to Florida. And Sunday was his last um, time of worship with us. And we had a service of mostly music and scripture reading. And uh, I think we, oh man, we probably sang about a dozen songs in that one service. And um, it was great. Um, And I realized that in a short amount of time, I mean, Cedric's been with us less than a year. And in a short amount of time, God has used him to spark within many members of the congregation a hunger that they didn't know they had. So when mm-hmm. I first arrived at Derrida Church, which is mostly, uh, or which is historically a, a white congregation, I'm the first African-American pastor. It is located in a neighborhood that is 70% African-American. I said something about a gospel choir and that just didn't go over very well. And when I talked to people about it, their response was, well, we don't do that. We're white. That's not for us. It's Mm -hmm. not our thing. And Cedric came in and he started doing gospel music along with uh, traditional hymns, along with contemporary praise courses. And people gravitated toward some very, what, what we would label as traditional Black gospel songs. Uh, songs that I would expect to hear in a rural, historically African-American church. And folks just really gravitated toward those songs. And so when he left on Sunday, or when we had a time of, of celebrating him, reception and food and all that good stuff, people were sharing things uh, about his time with us. And they were saying how much they loved those songs and uh, how much they... Uh, wanted to include them in their own, uh, not just time on Sunday, but I, I want to find the recordings and listen to them in the car. Mm-hmm. And I'm listening to this and just being astonished by the work of God, because truly this is, you know, in so many congregations, you have to be there 10, 20, 30 years before you become one of us, right? They're kind of mm-hmm. these tight family systems in less than nine months this man endeared himself to this congregation. And again, there's a hunger sparked. And as pastor, it's a beautiful thing to see God work this way. Yeah. I mean, so it's so interesting that that is what the conversation you want to have, because it really connects to one of the things that I sent you earlier today. So I 
right now um, am on retreat with some friends that um, who are also all pastors and we have been going on retreat one way or another, except for the past two years for, for 20 years. So um, I've known these people for a long time. I let, let those who have ears to hear, hear that I have asked many, many, many times Yolanda to come and be part of this group, maybe even crossed over the line to begging. And he's always been like, no, thanks. So um, he would be very welcome, but this is not his group. Um, But, uh, and so a, it's really great um, to be with them and to be in a totally different place and um, be a part in a part of the country that I'm not normally part of and just kind of seeing um, some of you know the other sides of friends' lives. It's just it's great. Um, and today um, I woke up and I had several members of the church reach out and send me um, this video clip of a comedian doing a set. And so, a the internet's a little bit spotty here, so I I have to start off by saying like I didn't I didn't I wasn't able to watch the whole thing, um, but it was just interesting. Like several different people, some people in my church, um, some white, some black. Like, oh, you have to read this, and I'm like, I see this. Like, what is this? And so it, um, so it's the comedian whose name is John Christ, who's kind mm-hmm. of a pretty popular um, white Christian comedian. Like, he does a lot of um, lampooning, I would say of like typical white evangelical church culture. Would you say that too? Yes. Yes. And so I guess he was doing a comedy set at a club and there were some people sitting in the front row and it turns out that they are pastors and they are maybe, I couldn't really tell, but maybe one was white and one was black. And he was asking them questions and he asked them what their church was like and mm-hmm. he said is your church white or black and they said mixed, mixed. okay that's and, interesting but okay and he said <laughs> he said no it's not he said there's no um, such it, thing right he said there's no such thing and then i think one of the reasons people particularly were sending it to me is because he was like mm, what's the name of your church is it something like the grove that's a white church <laughs> was like oh <laughs> like stab me in the heart and i saw that and, and yeah i know i mean and, and he was asking questions. And one of the things he was asking, and this is the connection to what you were saying, was what kind of music, what kind of music do you sing? Because if you sing Hillsong music, then you're a white church. Like, I don't care who is gathered for worship. That's a white church. And I think, so, I mean, it's really interesting being in a church that is multi-ethnic and is trying always to become a holier, healthier, multi-ethnic community and trying to build on that. Like your worship culture and your music culture is just a big, um, it's a big thing that you have to figure out. And the place that I can really identify with his joke is it is true that there is white church culture. There's white mainline church culture. There's white evangelical church culture. There's black evangelical church culture, there's black mainline church culture and music is different in all of those spaces. And what is hard, and we've talked about this a lot, and especially, you know, in the years that we've been on this journey, like if you are trying to allow the Holy Spirit to form a healthy and holy multi-ethnic community, it's not like there is some there's another model out there of what that looks like, right? And we've talked a lot about there are worshiping communities that are multi-ethnic, but monocultural, right? And so I think that is really was his joke, right? Is that 
you can have whoever you want to have in the congregation, but there's a dominant culture that's forming what is normal and what is holy in your space. And I think the reason that that just like hits so deep that it's hard for me to laugh at that is like, that's just what I think about and wrestle with every day. And the music stuff is like particularly hard because on the one hand, um, you want to be really thoughtful. And certainly at the Grove, we, we were given the gift of wisdom from these consultants of saying like, Hey, you can't just continue to worship in the way that you want to worship with the culture that feels comfortable to you and expect the church culture to change or the people in the congregation to change. Like there are many ways to worship. And as we've talked multiple times, like it is a posture of the heart that makes them authentic or not authentic. And And so being willing to say, I want to learn to sing songs that are new to me. I want to learn to sing songs that are um, articulations of faith from people who are in the body of Christ, but who have often been segregated away from my quote tribe on Sunday mornings. Like that, that's really important. And there is an issue of, well, what does it mean for a church that is historically white? to start singing gospel music with some people would say with some, with some um, fairness, like, Hey, those songs don't belong to you. You can't sing them. Other people would say, well, if you're not like trying to honor and participate in the culture of people who are joining your congregation, then that's dishonoring and silencing them. Some people at the Grove, like people of color have said to me explicitly, hey, Kate, if we, well, they would say, Pastor Kate, Pastor Kate, if we wanted to be in a church that sang gospel music, we would be at that church, right? Like saying like, honestly, this is not like just the whole depth and power of these gospel songs are very much embodied in a historically black congregation handing it down from generation to generation and there's something maybe not appropriate for a white church to be just taking these songs and saying they're ours on the other hand if a song is sacred and is manifesting the glory of god then it's hard for any group of people to say this belongs to us, right? Because what makes a song, to your point, like what makes a song transformative is the fact that the Holy Spirit is in it. And if it's true and it's God's truth, then it belongs to God's children. And then finally, and this is something that black members of my church have said to me explicitly, like people will say like, oh, that folk music, you know, that's not, that's like white church music. And people will be like, no, I like that music. Black members of my church saying like, don't decide for me that this isn't music that I can appreciate and enjoy, right? So it's just like all of this tension that's not bad, but is very real in figuring out, well, what is the culture that is authentic, um, that is an authentically multi-ethnic culture that doesn't exist. Like you can't just grab it and import it from somewhere else. And like part of the becoming that happens is sort of sitting with and living with the discomfort of like, oh, I'm now in a space where my favorite songs aren't everybody's favorite songs. And what does that mean? And like, sometimes I'm asked to join in as a song that doesn't speak to my 
personal or generational experience and what does that mean? And I don't know, I just feel like there's a real um, pushback in a lot of spaces against multi-ethnic churches. And I think some of it is from people who think, well, my church can't slash won't slash doesn't want to become multi-ethnic, therefore it's not possible or not appropriate. And other people saying like, my church, which is a safe space and a sanctuary and like a hush arbor for a oppressed and marginalized group of people, like I don't want to lose that culture that centers our experience that is so often ignored and silenced and discounted. And, you know, being able to say, I understand that multi-ethnic churches aren't for everyone, but also like for me, the bottom, and I, I mean, and I'm also willing to concede, like, there's just a level of ridiculousness. Like you just don't get to look cool all the time. And there's, there's deep hurt sometimes in the congregation of people like giving what is sacred and holy to them and other people in the community kind of speaking authentically about like, well, sometimes the music isn't that great for me, but I love this church anyway. And and then there are people who are like, well, that music that's not so great for you is like my deepest, holiest, truest, most vulnerable, authentic expression of my faith. So what does that mean? And just living with that and saying, well, still we believe, and this is my bottom line, and then I promise I'll shut up. But like, what I know for sure is that the church triumphant is a multi-ethnic community. Like, I know that. And so, I mean, I get that the reason that that comedy set was like hard for me to laugh at is because it wasn't untrue. (laughs) Like all of those um, things, like all of that is real and it's just hard. Like you are feeling like constantly like, well, if you're trying to center other people's voices, is that performative? Is that cultural appropriation? But if you are doing something that feels like more, you know, is is this thing that feels more comfortable shutting people out? Like, it's just hard to feel like where, whatever that sweet spot is. And, um, like just living with that tension, like going after this thing that frankly, you're never going to perfectly achieve, right? Like on this side of new creation, healthy and holy multi-ethnic church is not fully realizable, I don't think. But that doesn't mean that I think we shouldn't be going after it, right? Like I think the attempt and the failure is holy. And I don't think that that's an excuse to harm people, (laughs) Um, like to really understand that in some real ways we are playing with, um, you know, we're we're playing with dynamite um, and that there's real danger. But I also think the fact that it's dangerous and the fact that failure is pretty inevitable and pain is pretty inevitable doesn't excuse us from saying like, well, what in the world is the church and what are we doing if we're not going after being the church? So that's what I've been thinking about. Yeah. I heard you say um, multi-ethnic church on this side of heaven is always becoming and I would say that's also true for uh, mono-ethnic churches, right? They're, all church yeah. is in the process of becoming. And let's be clear that even outside the church, there are many people in our country and others 
who just live on the margins of different cultures, right? They, they, they may identify with a particular culture, but where they live day in and day out is, is, is at an intersection. For example, mm-hmm. um, growing up, I mean, I was a black kid in suburbia. So it should be no surprise that in the early 80s, okay, I listened to Kiss. I had some Kiss albums. Mm-hmm. Um, I even wanted to do Kiss makeup and dress up like the baby, just because that's that's just kind of where I lived in that intersection. I fully understood myself to be um, an African-American kid. There was no question about that, but I lived at a place where I experienced more than my culture. And there were some things I embraced and some things I didn't embrace. I think the church has not, um, I think it's moving in this direction, but it, it seems that it has not been as eager to embrace uh, those those places of intersection, those places where different cultures meet. Um, and I, you know, there's, um, uh, my wife and I have talked about this, my wife who's Korean, uh, I believe it's Gwinnett County, North East Atlanta. There's a place in Gwinnett County where there's a sizable African-American community located right next to a sizable Korean community. And we've asked the question, what what if a couple like us, Mm multi-ethnic family, planted a church there? Um, I, I can't think of another, you know, Black Asian congregation in the country, but I think it's possible in that community because those people live, work, move, and have being in such close proximity. The church, I think because of the church growth movement of the 60s, 70s, and 80s that emphasized, if you want your church to grow, be monocultural. Be monocultural, that that is the way. And for many congregations, it worked. I mean, I like- In the um, sense that if what work meant was get big, it yes. made them get big. There are a lot of things I like about um, Saddleback Pastor. I cannot think of his name right now. Uh, Rick, Rick Warren. Warren. There, I listened to him and I'm like, you know what? I could hang out with that guy. But Saddleback grew on that principle as a matter of fact, I think uh, when they were when they were um, planting that church, they had a character, an, an image of a person they called Saddleback Sam, right? Yep. And so it was yep. a, a kind of a caricature of the average person that lived in that community. And so I think we we kind of took that model and thought that okay, this is how you do church. This is how you grow church. And so when yeah. you're talking about a multi-ethnic church, well, that just runs totally counter to that church growth idea. Well, and the reality, but the problem is, and it's just deeply ironic that this, I, the idea is like, well, what's the point of the church? Like the unstated assumption is the point of the church is to make sure that as many people meet Jesus as possible, right? Like that's, so that's why the church exists. And so it, it then stands to reason it's quote obvious, like, let's just make this institution as big and as powerful as possible. And then as many people as possible can meet Jesus. And that's our, that's our goal. But what is problematic about that set of assumptions is if you read the actual, Oh, I don't know, Bible, Mm. (laughs) then those churches were not designed 
to be monocultural, monoethnic for maximum efficiency, right? Like the whole point of how you discovered who Jesus was, was discovering Jesus in the context of a multi-ethnic community where you continually had to question what of my way of seeing and being and knowing God in the world is transcendent and what of it is my cultural biases and pre conditions and that maybe is not necessarily wrong but is not normative right and so that's like every one of Paul's letters and a lot of the conflict and act and is people walking out like well how do I do life with people whose whole experience of the world is radically different mm-hmm. than mine and their identity is radically different than mine and the way they encounter Jesus is radically different than mine and yet somehow we belong to one another and the truth that, Jesus is sharing with us doesn't erase our identities and it doesn't make us monocultural, but it does create a new community with new values and new norms and new ways that both include who we authentically are and challenge us to become more than our own best ideas and thoughts and aspirations. And that's what I think is missing in in church period is that in times we can think like, well, the point is to be a quote, successful church and success looks like a certain amount of institutional stability and reach. And I mean, it's just possible to be successful and deeply unfaithful. And I would say, you know, to the extent that a church would say like, well, let's just make a choice that this, you know, this is our culture and anyone is welcome here as long as they shave off all the edges of themselves that don't fit in. And anyone is welcome here as long as they recognize that any needs we're not meeting are needs that they're going to have to go somewhere else. Like that church might be successful institutionally, but it's deeply unfaithful. And I was talking I don't know to who lately too about saying like the big, oh, because I was at a Bible study on Sunday night talking with um, a community that lives in our neighborhood of, of men going through recovery. And, you know, part of the issue is you're living in a space with other people who are on the same journey, but they're different people. And like, you're trying to handle, you know, grow your sobriety and handle your recovery. And then also you just have all of this, like, um, conflict and problems of like, oh, I got to live with these people. And like, wouldn't it be better if, you know, if I could just focus on my recovery and not deal with the relational stuff and to try to like, just to share really transparently that, you know, earlier in my life as a pastor, I spent a lot of time, um, and I, and certainly a lot of emotional energy, like really stressing about it when people I loved had problems with people I loved, right? Like to be, to have a pastor's heart and to say, and it's a gift of the Holy spirit that I really genuinely love people in my church. And I think it's part of just the way that people approach me and the role that I'm in. It's just not, it's not hard to love people, but sometimes it is hard for people to love each other. And when you, I mean, it's like watching your kids have a conflict with one another, right? When someone you love is hurt by someone you love, or they're locked in a conflict and sort of my, my beginning understanding of what church was and what successful church was, was well, okay my job is to like broker this, right? Like, let me get in the middle, like, let me go to person A and just be like, hey, person B didn't mean that. And this is who they really are. And if you could just give this to person B, that would be okay. And then go to person B and say, hey, person A, like, you just don't know this about them. And if you could just, you know, and just to feel like, okay, this community will be successful as long as I can make these people um, be okay with one another. And if I can fix their conflict, then we'll all be better off. And as I am maturing 
painfully slowly, I'm coming to realize what, what scripture has always been clear about is that those conflicts are not detours. They are the means to the end of maturity, right? And so it's, it's understanding that like, you're living in this house and you're working on your sobriety and your recovery journey. And this problem that you're having with the person living next to you, like that's not a distraction from your journey to wholeness and fullness of life. That is part, if you lean into that and say like, okay, why can't I say what I need? Why can't I tell the truth? Why can't I accept that this person isn't capable of meeting my emotional needs? How, why can't I just accept that this person is you know, has strengths and weaknesses and, and is good in, in this area and also just can't function in that way. Like, why can't I accept that about them? And I think in a multi-ethnic church that's healthy and holy, you are going to have this constant tension about like what music is sung and what music isn't sung and what music, um, what worship culture is for you and what's not. And, and when do we lean into something that feels uncomfortable? And when do we leave something behind because it feels like cultural appropriation? Like that tension, it's not meant for us to get over it. It's meant for us to constantly navigate it using the only tool we have, which is the cross of Jesus Christ, right? And really saying like, I'm in complete surrender to what God is building this community. And I recognize that this person in front of me is my brother, is my sister, and I'm called to be in holy relationship with them. And so what, you know, what do I need to do? Bill was going to make a surprise appearance in our podcast. <laughs> like, what do I need to do to take this conflict instead of seeing it as a detour, I'm seeing it as a catalyst and really a place of blessing for my own maturity and um, wisdom. So, yeah, having conversation, especially in times of conflict around music and culture, requires us to go deep and to be vulnerable. And those are two things mm -hmm. the contemporary church just isn't accustomed to doing, in my experience. Right. And if what we're talking about is being transformed and coming alive in Christ mm -hmm. and being part of new creation, wherein everything is changed, like, again, these are not things we enjoy and they're not things we seek out, but they are the places where God meets us and grows us. And that's why I think like, to the extent that we in our humanness just want to say like, Hey, let's just make it simple. Let's just be monocultural yes, churches and get yes. rid of all this other stuff. So we can just focus on Jesus and yeah. become who we need to be. And then God will sort it out and fall out in heaven well, and say like, this is not the point yeah. um, to make it simple and to make it easy mm -hmm. means to rob us of our ability to become the people that Jesus. Yes. Is people love to so say, People love to say, oh, when we get to heaven, there's not going to be any kind of ethnic divisions. We're all going to be together. And so won't, won't that be great? And the sentiment seems to suggest, oh, well, let's just wait for God to zap us with that, to take us there. And we want to skip yeah. this whole difficult and challenging process of becoming that, and which is exactly what you're saying. Right. Well, and, and who is it? Oh, gosh, I can't think of his name the one who talks about grace, grace is opposed to earning, not effort. It's, um, I'm going to think of his name, hearing from God. I'm going to think of his name as soon as I say this next part of the story, but I, I don't know, you put it in the liner notes, but 
I mean, he just talked about like, we all have this idea that like, oh, I, you know, I want salvation in Jesus and I can't wait for eternity with Jesus. And he, Dallas Willard, Dallas uh. Willard is like, I really question the fact that people who are not interested in, you know, building up treasure in heaven and people who are not interested in reconciling with enemies and people who are not interested in, you know, finding what it means to say, blessed are those who mourn and blessed are those who pray. Like, why, if you don't want it in this life, why do you think that you're going to want it in the next life? Like this, this is the reality is that this is, is God coming among us and saying like, this is what abundant life in my kingdom looks like. And we have this idea of like, okay, well, what I want Jesus is for you to like make my business successful and heal me and make my kids yes. not have sex before they get married. And then I'm going to go ahead and do whatever I want to do in this life, fix my problems. And then someday I'll meet up with you in heaven. Like, no, the reality is the kingdom is here and now. And so all of these things that we don't want, which is to engage our sinfulness to like surrender our will to God's will to recognize that people who trigger us and offend us and challenge us are are our brothers and sisters are gifts to us like all mm. this truth that we want to avoid like it's like these are exactly the places that Jesus came to lead us to and that I think is what a lot of very successful American churches have completely avoided mm. um helping people wrestle with in their pursuit of becoming institutionally vibrant. So, and I would also just like to say in closing, I'm a big fan of institutions. Like I'm not saying, you know, I think that institutions are evil or bad. I mean, they're useful, but I also think, you know, there comes a time when we are like avoiding, we, we don't want to risk the institution so much that we're avoiding doing the things that the institution exists to do. Yeah, so, yeah. um, Anyway, I, I just appreciate about your story full circle to say, Cedric coming into your community and saying this from my heart, this is how I worship God. And I'm sharing my authentic experience of worshiping God and people in your community being like, yes, this is transcendently true. And I am edified and grown and changed by that. Like to me, that's the whole that's the whole enchilada, like, mm -hmm. and, and it's what should be happening. And it doesn't surprise me that it's happening. And I do think there's just a lot of people who sit on the sidelines in other kinds of Christian communities and have like things to say about why that shouldn't happen or why that's not right. And I mean, everyone is obviously entitled to their opinion, but I mean, what we are about here is a life that comes not from us, but from Jesus. And so the fact that we find authentic common ground in our love and adoration of Jesus, like that makes sense to me. Yeah. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. So what are you thinking about? Well, I'm thinking about this article that I'm sure you saw it too. Um, this woman, Tish Hardison wrote, Harrison, Chris, Tish Harrison Warren wrote an op-ed in the New York Times yesterday saying that it is time to end virtual church. Um, she is an Anglican priest in New York City, and people can what? look it up. But to, I mean, to summarize her point as generously as I can, she was saying, look, virtual church makes it too easy for people not to come and be in, in the space embodied in the room. And Christianity is an intrinsically embodied tradition. And so 
you know, having this virtual option makes it easy for people to not do the work of coming and, you know, engage the awkwardness of showing up for one another. And so we need to take away that easy option so that people will recommit. And she said, and I know people are going to say, well, what about the shut-ins? But I'm telling you that in my church, we have a visitation ministry and like we go out and we visit the shut-ins where they are. And that's harder than just throwing up virtual church, but it's better. And I, you know, it's just so interesting to me. I've just been thinking about how deeply, deeply, deeply wrong that is. And to me, that um, perspective of the way we've always done it is the best way and the only way. And we need to go back that. And and a need that I don't have is a need that no one should have. Um, to me, that's just very emblematic of, and I say this as a mainline Christian, that's mainline Christian Protestant thinking. And to just to say um, there's a way to engage with people virtually um, and I just don't see any value in it. And, and basically, and we've talked about this before, there's just this real spirit in the culture of a lot of mainline churches that, that like there's a, well, I mean, it's, it's related to what we're talking about. Like there's a tribe of what it means to be Episcopalian and a tribe of what it means to be Presbyterian and a tribe of what it means to be Methodist. And the people we're in relationship are the people that we want to be in relationship with. And anybody who knows enough to navigate the system and stumble into our space, like we'll be welcome to them. But basically, if we don't know you, we're not for you. And that's what's threatening about this online space is there are ways for people to access and become part of your community with no barriers. And not to mention, I mean, it's just so sad for me to think about this idea that people who have been able to come and participate physically in a community getting to a point because of age or other infirmity, and they can no longer come into the space. And then we say to them, well, you don't belong in worship anymore. We'll come see you once a month if you're lucky. But if you can't be here physically, then you can't be here. I mean, it's just so sad, both in terms of shutting the doors to the strangers um, around you and not being willing to understand that God works in, in unexpected ways. It's sad to think we live in a cultural moment where people go to the doctor online, they date online, they go to school online, they grocery shop online. So people who are far from any kind of institutional church, when they're beginning their spiritual journeys, they're going to go online and to shame and blame them is ridiculous. And to get to a point where you say, basically people of my community only get to be a vital part of my community for as long as they are able to show up physically. And after that, they get relegated to the B team and they don't matter anymore. And that's, you know, beyond the whole reality of the pandemic. And she spent a lot of time talking about how like it made sense with the risk of coronavirus at one point to go virtual, but now the risk is gone and Omicron is mild. And if you're vaccinated, you should just come back. So deciding for other people what their risk level should be. I mean, it was just a stunning, it's rare that I read something that I'm like, oh, I cannot agree with a single thing this person has said, but that was one of them. Yeah. And let's, let's remember virtual worship existed before COVID, right? Mm -hmm. We did not start, we, the church, Big C, did not start doing virtual worship only with COVID. So especially those larger mega churches that were that have been growing, they were already doing virtual worship. They they saw something um, meaningful and helpful to the ministry in virtual worship. 
I think they were serious about evangelism. Like this is a way to meet people where they are. Yes. And I remember when I was a kid um, and my parents were looking to buy a new house and we went to several um, sites where they were still doing construction, not quite finished with the house, Mm -hmm. but almost. And I remember as a family driving up to several churches, several houses, getting out of the car and the five of us putting our hands and faces to the window to look in, mm-hmm. right? And what we were doing was we were not only looking at what was, you know, what, what it looked like on the inside, but imagining ourselves in that space. And I see virtual worship and the church's online presence yes. in general that way. It allows people who are outside the church to just to, to look in, well, okay, who are these people? What is this church? And, and to imagine themselves there with this particular part of God's family. And we, yeah. it, this just reminds me of how rigid the mainline church can be, how we can be rigid because we are a part of that. Yeah. Well, and I also just think it betrays so deeply how much insider outsider, yeah, like thinking we do without even being willing to own it, that we think like, well, it's not intimidating. We go to church and check it out. So it's not intimidating. And to say, well, it's not intimidating for you, but you don't have any idea what it is like for someone who maybe, you know, has never been a part of the church before to walk into the space and not know, like, you know, that in your opinion, it's safe and it's welcoming, but they don't know much less somebody who comes from a different part of the world or a different religious background. Or, I mean, like, The idea of just saying like, well, no, no, this is a welcoming space for you. Like you don't know what somebody else's experience in your space will be. And you're again, sort of saying like, well, the people who are welcome here are the people who are comfortable here. And so there's no reason that we need to connect with people who are not going to feel safe and welcome walking in the door. It's just, I mean, it's really um, stunning and a huge danger of what happens when we grow to love our community so much that we no longer are willing to do the, the thought work of figuring out what would it feel like if I were an outsider and yes. to do the hard work of realizing outsiders do belong here. And that's just, and you have to make it easy for them to come in. You have to make it easy for them to come in. I mean, I'm reminded of this every time our family travels and we're away from home on a Sunday, my job is to, find a church for the family to worship, right? Mm-hmm. And I go through all of these websites and I'm looking at, okay, who's on staff? Is it multi-ethnic? Who's in the room in worship? And I'm asking the question, will we, as a multi-ethnic family, will we be welcome there? Will we feel comfortable there? And that will we be safe there? Will we be safe there? And that's work. And I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor for yeah. 20 whatever years, and it's work. Imagine someone who is a total outside. Listen, my friend uh Jeannie, who is a retired pastor in Omaha, Nebraska, she was telling me that her church, uh, a UCC church, has recently um, welcomed some uh, folks from Afghanistan, and she was uh, worshiping uh, near um, uh, some folks, uh, I think next to or behind, and they were singing out of the hymn book, and they just did not understand how the hymn book worked, because, you know, you you have a line, and it skips, and you, you know, mm-hmm. it's not one, two, three, four, right there in a row. It's not intuitive. It's not intuitive. And so she explained to them and they were like, oh, now we get it. But 
we have to make it easy for people. We have to explain things and not assume that, oh, we got it. You, you can pick this up without any kind of help, with any kind of intentional bringing you into the family. And just not understanding our role as people who follow and worship Jesus to say like, no, it is my responsibility to go out of my way to bring people in, right? Like it is not the responsibility of people who do not know how loved they are, who do not know the beauty and the goodness. It is not their responsibility to figure it out. It is me. It is my responsibility as a follower of the God who left the splendor of heaven and came down and emptied himself of himself and, you know, endured, like it is like to say, basically like, we're going to sit here in our room. And if you, if you want it bad enough, you'll find a way in. It's just so antichrist, right? It's so antichrist, but it is so American (laughs) to be able to say like, if you're one of us, you're one of us. And um, if you're not, we don't, we don't care to know you. So anyway, I was thinking about that. My friend and Russ, who's been doing virtual ministry um, for a long time, since well before the pandemic, she has a um, a website and a virtual and a totally virtual community called um, Doubting Believer. And she wrote a really great response to um, this article in the New York Times. Um, so you could look that up online. Her community, her name is Ann Russ. She's a pastor and her community is called Doubting Believer. And, and she said all of this um, really, really well. So wow. what are you thinking about? Oh, I'm thinking about um, the the sad story about um, um, Chesley Christ, the former Miss USA yeah. winner who uh, reports say uh, committed suicide, I believe on Sunday, this past Sunday, um, by mm-hmm. um, leaping off her apartment building. And um, it's just so disturbing because from the outside looking in, just had everything going for her, uh, smart, um, mm-hmm. law degree from Wake Forest University, MBA from Wake Forest University, uh, the winner of uh, the Miss USA pageant. Uh, she was working as a correspondent for Extra, uh, got to know celebrities, people um, who met her instantly kind of loved her and were drawn to her. I was watching an interview with Gail King, um, famously known as Oprah's friend, who said um, she met her, met Chesley, and asked for her number, thinking, I, I need to know this woman. Mm-hmm. I need to stay in touch with her and, and followed up with her and became a, a kind of mentor to her. Uh, but I'm wrestling with what makes someone who is 30 years old successful in the eyes of the world, attractive, smart, again, from the outside looking in, everything going for them, commit suicide. And I don't know anything about her spiritual commitments. There's certainly no judgment uh, from me on that because I have known pastors who've struggled with depression and suicide. Um, but I'm, I'm personally just wrestling knowing that depression is a real thing that people struggle with, knowing that mental health 
is, a, I mean, I hear people in this COVID season, you know, mental health, mental health, mental health, mental health, but it's, I don't hear much more. Um, right. it, it, it's something we're okay mentioning now, which is good. I'm, I'm grateful for that. But now there, there's a need for more. And I don't know what that well, more yeah. is, but I am, I, I want to, as a pastor, here's what I'm getting at. I want to, as a pastor, to be able to uh, minister to, uh, reach out to uh, people who are struggling. And they've interviewed many of her friends and her friends have said she was always on. They never saw or had a bad day. And, and I, I believe it may have been Gail King or, or another friend who said part of the problem was that we're always told to watch out for signs of depression. And one of her friends said, I saw no signs. I, I, yeah. I did not see any signs. Yeah. Well, I think like to your point, we, everyone is saying like, there's no stigma and mental health is something that everybody has to work on just like physical health. But I mean, just saying that, like naming the problem is great. Like, it's great that it's not buried in shame, but that doesn't solve it. Right. So, Correct. so, and even just saying like, check on your friends. I mean, that's great, but even that doesn't solve it. And what we have is, I mean, a toxic culture, a really sick culture. And um, to the extent, even that there's no stigma to getting help, there's still like a huge deficit of ways to do that. But I also think just watching that and watching people publicly mourn her in really authentic ways. I mean, another dynamic that I think is very real is, you know, she is this beautiful young black woman who has done the thing that everyone, you know, believes that all, you know, believes that all, that all black women and all black men are capable of, which is like her brilliance and her worth and her beauty were seen. Like she, she was validated in all of these spaces. And I think there's this deep um, need to believe that, okay, well, if we can just start seeing representation in different institutions and if we can just start you know removing the barriers to success from in you know from out of the way of um, people of color that then you know if you hit a certain level then then everything is okay and so to, to see this woman who you know was the epitome of like black girl magic and you know I've watched so many, parents um, who are raising black and brown girls saying like, I knew who she was before this moment because I lifted her up as a model to my own daughters to say like, you're beautiful, your hair is beautiful, your skin is beautiful, like you are smart, like you can do anything that anyone else can do. And so then to see that she, uh, you know, to see this huge tragedy unfold in her life is just such a gut punch, both for her intrinsic worth as a human and for people who feel like you know this role that she played I mean it's just it's really it's really bitter and so to say there's an issue of mental health which is everyone's issue and then there's just also a lot of questions about the fact that she was lauded and celebrated in a lot of historically white 
spaces. And we want to say like, okay, well, if you will just see the reality of the amazingness of people of color and let them in, everything will be fine. And the reality is, you know, some of those places are so toxic, not even if you remove the racism, they're just still toxic. And so to say like, yes, she was in a lot of, in the entertainment industry in in, um, academia, in, you know, high stakes legal professions where just a lot of the messages we send people is your worth is only as much as the last success or triumph you've had that there is um that the meritocracy is a steep pyramid and there's always something coming up after you that there's a limit to how you know successful how many people can be successful and um, you know, if you don't constantly grind, you're going to fail and it's going to be all the worse. I mean, just this idea that we live in a really, really sick place. And we think like, well, if I could just be validated in all those spaces, then I wouldn't have mental health issues. And the reality is like, no, you still will. Like if you win the brass ring, if you grab the brass ring of a broken, toxic merry-go-round, you're still on the broken, toxic merry-go-round. And so a lot of people, are dealing with mental health structure struggles. And we're saying like, oh, it's because of poverty or it's because they've been, you know, cast aside or bared, you know, barred from entrance in a lot of press. And like, I'm not downplaying any of that, that that's wrong and it's a tragedy and it's a burden. But, you know, even, even when you get access and you get celebrated, that doesn't mean that winning in all those categories means that you have a, a healthy sense of who you are or that you are in a community that is life-giving and honoring. And, and I just feel like also what we need to say, what I feel like, I feel like everyone does know, but everyone doesn't, which is there's still this idea floating around that suicide is the one unforgivable sin. And that, you know, by taking your own life, you you've done a thing that God can never get over and you've disqualified yourself. And that is just a lie. It's 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 not a biblical lie. I mean, there's just no foundation for it in scripture. And so if that, you know, I think that honestly, probably part of the reason that that came up is well-meaning people thought let's stigmatize suicide so much so that people will resist it. Like they'll think no matter how miserable my life is, I don't want to burn for it. Oh, no, eternity I, in hell. And I think that comes from a place of of wanting to be grace and gospel centered, but you're really works centered. So the idea is mm-hmm. that if I confess the sin, then God will forgive me because God is gracious. But if I don't for- confess the sin, then um, then God won't forgive me. And so I've got I've got to confess it because if I can. If, if if something is a sin, and the and I don't sin being it. right, and the sin in this scenario, in this bad theology scenario, the sin Correct. would be suicide. So yes. they would say, on a technicality, God could forgive this sin, but technically yes. you're dead, so you can't ask for forgiveness. Therefore, the cross is empty of its power, and you know, sorry. And, and that's and, where I was going. That yeah. thinking empties the cross of its power, mm-hmm. yes. and it makes it seem like we save ourselves by perceiving our sin and asking for forgiveness. So it's really our intellectual, spiritual Mm -hmm. move that is salvific, not what Jesus did on the cross. At the very least, what Jesus did on the cross was not sufficient. It needs Mm -hmm. a little top off from us. So it's just really, um, you know, it is horrific. And if there is anybody listening who, I mean, in those statements about 
suicide being the one unforgivable sin are usually made with great authority. And so to just be able to say, well, I know two pastors who say that that, that, that idea that there is a sin that God cannot forgive, um, that there is a sin that the power of the cross cannot break, that's blasphemy. Mm. And that's great news. Um, it's great news to know that suicide is not more powerful than the grace of Jesus Christ. Um, and I mean, to your point, as we were talking before we started recording, like just how important it is for us as communities of faith to realize people carry such heavy burdens. You don't know who's carrying what kind of burden. Mm -hmm. And it's so important that our communities are grounded in the hope, not of us, <laughs> but of Jesus. To be able to say to people like, look, I don't know what you're carrying around right now. And you might have zero cause for optimism and no realistic expectation of change. And you don't know how long you can hold on. And all of this can be true. And what we have faith in is not how we respond to Jesus, mm. but what Jesus has done. We have hope in the, it is finished. And we have hope in the proclamations of what new creation will look like. And I have zero hope that some well-meaning humans working together and singing Kumbaya are going to be able to pull that off for God. What I have hope in is that the power of God at work in the world in ways that we often can't see, perceive, or appreciate is about that. And I have hope that that is happening in spite of us, but for us. So that's good. Yes, that is. Yeah. Thank you. Well, for that. I know I know that we have to, you have to go and I, <laughs> I have to go too. Um, my friends are having, there's dinner and there's cocktails <laughs> and, and it's getting rowdier and rowdier outside the store. So, <laughs> um, um, so thank you all so much for listening. If you want to find out more about what Yolando um, is partnering with Jesus doing at Derida Presbyterian, um, you need to find them online. It is D-E-R-I-T-A-P-R-E-S, deritapres.org. They worship every Sunday at 1030. Um, and if you want to listen to more of Yolanda's messages, you can find his whole back catalog on the Derida Prez podcast, which is on the Podbean website. And you can also join them from worship on YouTube every week, virtually. It's great. It counts. <laughs> and if you want to find out more about what God is doing at The Grove, you can start at our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can join us for worship um, in person or online at 10 o'clock on Sundays. Um, you can check out messages and moments in our congregation on our um, on our podcast, which is the Grove Church Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts or check out our YouTube channel, which we are paying attention to these days. So give us some feedback. Um, but thank you all for listening and we will talk to you next week.